scripture reader comes from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, and Psalm chapter 116, verses 12 and 17 through 19. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we want to welcome you to Sunday service today. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we continue on in our liturgy series, a sermon series called Liturgy, Why We Worship the Way That We Do. And uh, today we're talking about offering. And uh, really all along we've been taking each of the elements of our order of worship and asking the question, what is the thing that we're doing and why do we do it? And again, uh, today we're talking about offering. Now offering comes, uh, the time of offering comes after the time of the sermon. And if you'll notice in your bulletin, you'll see that it only occupies a relatively small amount of real estate on your page. Uh, But by no means are we saying that the size of the real estate that it occupies uh, correlate or correspond to the size of the significance of what we're doing. Because offering has everything to do with the gospel. Now, biblically, offering was something that you brought to God out of the gratitude of your heart, whether it was money or other kinds of possessions like oil or wheat like we read about in our passage or even jewelry at times in the Old Testament. People brought jewelry uh, to add to the beautification of the temple and um, even livestock, of course. And uh, today, the same applies. Um, It's 100% biblical to bring offerings uh, by way of money, but also tangible goods, service. And actually, in fact, in the New Testament, what it talks about is that our entire life should be a living sacrifice as an offering poured out for the Lord. Uh, But today, though, what we're talking specifically about is financial giving. We're talking about the money that we're giving Uh, to the Lord during the time of offering. Uh, But you know, it can be tricky talking about money because in uh, in the church because it's such a sensitive topic. And not only in the church, but pretty much everywhere else as well. Uh, Studies show that people would rather talk about 
their romantic relationships, their politics, their religion, even their medical conditions before they would want to talk about credit scores or their annual incomes. Uh, Laura Shin, who's a senior uh, contributor for Forbes magazine in her article entitled Money Taboo, uh, writes about this awkward exchange that she had at a party that she attended on the Upper East Side, um, and it was regarding the subject of money. And you'll find that quote in your bulletin, and I'll read it for us. Uh, I remembered an awkward exchange I'd had at a party on the Upper East Side a decade ago. I was in the kitchen with two older women helping with drinks and food, so we weren't actually looking at each other while we were chatting. One of them complimented me on my dress. I said, thanks, I love this dress. I got it at this great Brooklyn boutique and it was only $50. There was silence. Finally, one of them stammered out something about how she never thinks about the price of anyone's clothing or something to that effect and I suddenly realized that I had broken their social code. It can be incredibly awkward when two people with different rules of money etiquette meet. That was, that was with strangers, but even among friends, it could be a touchy subject. When was the last time you guys asked your friends in here, how much do you give during the time of offering at church? Kind of touchy. Or the question, how much savings do you have right now in both your checking and savings? Or uh, how much do you make? What's your annual income? Or what's the total credit card debt that you have right now? Uh, it, it's a touchy subject um, for sure. Uh, talking about money has, because of that, a strange way of influencing the way that we do relationships. And today, we're actually not saying that it shouldn't. Meaning, we're, we're absolutely saying that money should affect our relationships, but how should it? What does money, giving that money, namely during the time of offering in our liturgy, have to do with our relationships with each other in here? Well, we'll look at our passage today because I think it'll speak a lot to that. And we'll take a careful look together at the following three things. Uh, the logic and goal of worldly giving the logic and goal of Christian giving, and the significance for our corporate Christian giving and relationships. Let's first look at the logic and goal of worldly giving. Let me tell us the logic and goal right off the bat, and then I'll, I'll, we'll track through the passage and, and try and see if we can see it. Uh, here's the logic and goal of worldly giving. Uh, financial gifts especially. Uh, create these relational or social obligations that can be leveraged later for your own good. That's the logic. So we give, or people, the, the logic of worldly giving is that financial giving creates certain obligations, this social compact, uh, that can be leveraged later for your own good. And so if that's the logic, the goal is then to secure a future of well-being for yourself. Now let's go into the passage and see how we see that. And I'll do this in summary. There's an inefficient and wasteful manager who's being called in by the wealthy owner who's his master, and the master is going to fire him for being wasteful. And he becomes terribly concerned about his future, and the manager wonders what he should do. He says to himself, well, I don't have the physical qualifications for manual labor, and I don't want to put myself out for charity, 
And, and, and so what do I do? And so this is really a conundrum. It's going to affect me and my livelihood and uh, potentially my family, even though the passage doesn't say that he has a family. Uh, but then he comes up with this totally unscrupulous plan. And what he does is, as he's getting fired, he quickly goes to the master's debtors, all of them. And he goes to the debtors, and one by one, he asks the question, so how much do you owe my master? And the first debtor to the master answers by saying, oh, I owe the master 100 measures of oil. And so what the, 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 the manager says is, quickly, quickly uh, kind of correct the books to say that you actually owe just half of that. And then he goes on to the next debtor quickly and says, how much do you owe to the master? And that debtor says, oh, I owe 100 uh, measures of wheat. And he says, okay, quickly, quickly rewrite the bill so that it reads that you only owe 80. Uh, you see what he's doing. His reasoning is very simple. In a culture where a gift creates an obligation, he recognizes that all these people will feel obligated to accommodate him uh, when he feels himself without a job and income. And with these sums of money, and it's not, you know, if we would kind of translate um, all these sums, it wouldn't uh, add up to a small amount. With these sums at stake, he's able to rely on their hospitality for a really long time if he needs to. And at this, the master looks at this dishonest, unethical manager and says, though you're wasteful, that was, that was pretty good. He says, that, that was pretty clever, right? Uh, that was pretty smart. Now, what's your reaction to this story? Was he dishonest? Yeah. Was he unethical? Yeah. But you know, he was pretty smart, right? Because he was guaranteeing for himself a future of accommodation from all these debtors that he connected and, and hooked up, right? Uh, the manager, in other words, is taking all of his wit He's taking all of his creativity, taking all of his imagination and, and savvy, his business connections, the clout um, while he still has it, as well as the insightful understanding he has about money and people, and he's leveraging it for himself to secure a future of well-being. Uh, pretty selfish, pretty unethical, but pretty smart, pretty clever. And we actually don't need to look very far to see examples of this, right? Maybe we have coworkers and colleagues who are maybe a little bit like this, right? They'll do anything to advance their career. They'll, they'll sort of bend the lines of ethics and even morality, and they'll kind of uh, butter up to uh, superiors in a way that just kind of makes you cringe, and it just kind of irks you, uh, because you know what they're doing. They're trying to secure for themselves um, a, a future of well-being, because uh, they probably know that when you stroke the fancies of people who are in power, um, they could earn points, and they can stack up points that can later benefit them. And I wonder what our Christian reaction should be to that. Uh, yeah, for sure to objectively and by biblical standards identify that, yeah, m uh, maybe that is uh, definitely in the way of self-preservation, uh, maybe not as other-centered as it could be, but you know what? They're, they're doing exactly what we expect them to be doing, um, being smart and being clever. But now what about for Christians who are referred to by Jesus as the sons of light in this parable? 
Um, are we being shrewd in the Christian categories that we have, and what's the logic and goal of our Christian giving? Well, if the first seven verses tell us about the logic and goal of worldly giving, the last two verses will tell us about the logic and goal of Christian giving. And so if you'll look with me um, again to verses eight and nine, uh, Jesus is going to say something about the logic and goal of Christian giving now. Verse eight says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation or times than the sons of light. And here's the startling application that Jesus is going to give for the logic and goal for Christian giving. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Actually, this, uh, this verse garners um, a really bad rep because it, feel, it feels like it shouldn't be in the Bible because what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, take unrighteous wealth and use it to buy friends, some translations say, right? I mean, it, it sounds like that in that first glance. It's like, Jesus, what are you telling us to do here? Well, first of all, just to break it down, unrighteous wealth, Uh, What Jesus is referring to is money that would come into our checking accounts or our wallets. Um, All of that money, all that currency is money that originates from the systems, institutions, and businesses of this world. And because this world is a product largely of the fall, Jesus is simply referring to any money, any currency as a human invention. And that, so, so in other words, what will help us out to think about is what will the role of currency be in heaven, like money? It'll definitely be different um, from the way that it's used today, and I don't know how exactly, but it will be, right? Because there's going to be a generosity, and, and I wonder what the role then of capitalism is going to be in heaven, But suffice it to say, uh, Jesus is referring to unrighteous money as just simply money that originates from the world. And those are the the currencies, the monies that line our wallets. And so that's what he's saying. But the point of Jesus saying this is this, that like the sons of the world, we too have resources. We have our wit. We have our savvy. We have uh, business know-how and connections Uh, We have imaginations that we can use and, of course, uh, the money. And we can take all those things and steward them and leverage them to prepare for a future. But the question is, what is that future for the Christian and what or who should we be investing in? And what Jesus is saying here, Jesus' answer to that question, what and who should we be investing in, what is that future for the Christian is this eternal friends in eternal dwellings. Eternal friends in eternal dwellings. You see, as Christians, we are heaven-bound people. And eternal dwellings is where we'll be, and eternal friends is who we will have for company. And so you see, financial givings that we offer to God during the time of offering, during our liturgy, will be used by God to invest in friends you will see again in heaven someday who will be ravishing in the beauty of glory 
all because you gave to the Lord today. So what does this look like when church money, uh, to kind of bring it down for us, what does it look like when church money is spent on eternal friends for eternal dwellings? To start, it, it looks like me. Uh, I'm a product bought by and developed by church money, if you will. Uh, I'm a life that was changed by the gospel because people gave to the Lord. And here's what I mean. Um, All those times that Peter, my Bible study teacher in high school, took us out for Mickey D's and made us share prayer requests and made us share sins in our past week, all those times that he did that, he was giving to the Lord, and because of that, my life was changed. Uh, maybe on to um, uh, heavier and more significant examples. Um, all those donors who helped pay for my seminary tuition. Um, 60% of my entire seminary tuition was funded by one donor, and that was actually my home church. And the rest of the 40% was funded Uh, by personal donors. Because they gave to the Lord, uh, my life was changed uh, for good and for the gospel. Uh, That time my laptop crashed in seminary and I didn't have backed up my final paper. Um, But a church member, and actually three church members at the time, collectively, all within a span of one day, 24 hours, gave me petty cash so that I could buy for myself a brand new MacBook Pro and even a little bit of money left over to buy one of those black foam in-case laptop uh, cases. That, that was the thing that was in back then. And even uh, by way of just maybe another unseeming example, there was a time when I was a youth pastor up in Boston where I overspent uh, nearly 10K um, for one of our retreats. And it's a long story, but uh, basically I had like a 30-man praise team. I had like three keyboards, three electric guitars. We were gonna blow the roof off that place. And I just kind of wanted to make it um, in atmosphere. I just blow the roof off, smoke machines, all the you know gadgets and lights and all that stuff, and 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 you can just see the the the, the naivete, right, and just the super um, idiocy of young youth pastors sometimes. Um, but um, I blew it. I blew it. And actually, the day that we arrived back to church, um, you know, we roll up into by church vans and we're kind of unloading. Um, and the entourage of the praise team is behind us too. And uh, right there, standing at the front gate of the church is the CFO of the church and one of the associate pastors. And they say, hey, Brian, like, welcome back. Come with me. And so they uh, bring me into the senior pastor's office. And when I walk into the office, um, all of the elders of the church are sitting in the senior pastor's office. And I know why they're there, right? They're, I'm expecting to be reamed out and at worst just to be fired, right? Just to be let go. And I knew why they were there. I felt so, so bad that I had just so irresponsibly and wastefully spent all this money that you know what I did? That I I actually started just crying right there in the office. And, And I'm not even kidding you. I was just like sobbing and saying, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. And all the elders just kind of stoic faced, right? Just, just letting me cry it out, <laughs> right? But you know what happened? The senior pastor came over to me, and I'll never forget this, but um, he came over, and you know what he did? He, he hugged me. And when he hugged me, I actually started crying harder <laughs> because it almost would have been easier if he said, um, you know what, we're going to let you go right? That, that would have been fair, right? That would have been more than fair. But what I couldn't take was the amount of grace that I was being shown. And it was even harder and more of a burden on my heart uh, to handle. And so I just started crying even harder. But you know when I started crying harder? He started hugging harder. And, and, and when I finally stopped crying, he said, Brian, good job at the retreat. We heard that a lot of kids were blessed. Go get some rest. And so I went home that night, and I caught back with him um, later that week, and you know what he said? I'll never forget this. He said, Brian, I don't want you to think of this 10K um, as you wasting 10K. I want you to see this 10K as money that the church invested in you to make you a better pastor. You know, that night I went home and I prayed, and I remember the prayer that I prayed, and I said, Father, help me to teach others this grace that you taught me for the rest of my life. I want to be a preacher and pastor who teaches grace for the rest of my life. And if you would call me to that work, I'm yours. My life was changed because of the money that people gave to the Lord. What about for us? As Exilic Congregation, how is your financial giving to the Lord being invested in eternal friends for eternal uh, dwellings? Well, if you just simply look at our church budget, you'll see um, that there are going to be a bunch of expense lines, right? And Town Hall is coming up next month, and you'll get to see just where this money that you're giving to the Lord is being allocated. But you'll see expense lines like missions, you'll see expense lines like pastoral staff, or mercy fund, or partnership, and all these lines can really just seem kind of corporately and sterilely and kind of impersonally. But behind these expense lines are people, and stories, eternal friends. So for instance, you might see missions as an expense line, but you know what I see and think when uh, I see that line? I see seven eternal sisters. And maybe you'll know what I'm talking about here. Th this past year, we, for the very first time in Exilic's uh, history, sent um, a short-term mission trip to Cambodia. And uh, there were uh, seven church members who went on this trip, and all of them happened to be sisters. And I'm just going to call them the seven sisters from now on, okay? You'll know who I'm talking about here. Um, and the church uh, invested a considerable amount of money. I think we funded about half of the entire overhead for the trip, and, and, and plus, you know, all the contributions for the missionary that we we're partnering with. Uh, for this year and, and continuing. But you know what the best thing to have come out of the investment of the church and for the sisters that went, for the missionary that we're partnering with? The best thing to have come out of it was that there were six church members, seven church members, and I'll, and I'll tell you who they were, right? It was Lisa, 
Lisa, Jen, Danielle, Sally, Allison, Anna, and Ashley, right? I rehearsed that a little bit. Um, but those seven sisters, you know, you know the best thing that, that came out of that trip was that seven church members, relative strangers to one another actually, before this trip, went to Cambodia, and when they came back, they came back as sisters for life. And you know now, you know what they're like? The love that they share f- with each other is disgusting. <laughs> it's just absolutely disgusting how much they love each other. I mean, you just see it on their Insta posts, right? I mean, they're going out for dinners all the time. They went on a hiking trip and they post that stuff up, right? Um, you know, wine and movie nights and they're hanging out all the time together. It's just absolutely disgusting, but <laughs> amazing, amazing, right? Because of this relatively minimal investment, right, in our sisters and on this, for this Cambodia trip, there's seven sisters now who love God and love each other, and now you know what's coming from this, the formation of our very first missions committee at the church. And they're, they're starting to vision cast and strategize and getting people excited about this vision of partnering globally. So you see that one investment can really have this collateral effect, effect of blessing so many people. And that's just the missions, right? And that's just one small part of what we're doing for missions. There's another expense line that reads pastoral staff. And, and I don't know why we get so sensitive talking about pastoral staff salaries, right? But pastoral staff, it goes to salaries. It goes to um, sort of the operational cost for the pastoral staff. But you know what I see when I read that line, pastoral staff? What I see and think is Logan and Hayden. What I see and think is Andy, Caleb, and Nathan. And I see Evelyn, of course, too. Um, Who will grow up seeing their ministering parents being so loved and supported by their congregation that they one day will come to know the power of God's love for them and the provision of God in their life. And I really hope and pray for the day when our kids will see you all in heaven And they'll come up to you and say, thanks for giving to my parents. Because because of you, our parents were so encouraged that they actually had bandwidth and energy to give back to us. Um, When when stories are so common of PKs straying to the left or to the right um, and not having really time to spend with their ministering parents, because Exilic is giving to the pastors, you see that there's, again, this collateral blessing to our children now. And so I really do look forward to that day as well. But you know, there are also other budget lines in our um, annual budget um, where you actually won't get to know who the money's going to. And I'm talking about the Mercy Fund, the Mercy Fund. There are people who are tapping and using the Mercy Fund for needs and assistances they need for their life right now. And a lot of them are dire, a lot of them are serious, a lot of them are are kind of sad. Um, but they need that money, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't ever tell you. And you, you may not even know who they are. Um, but really, you know what my prayer and hope is? Is that when we get to heaven, right, when we're with our eternal friends, that they would come up to you, and they would say, thanks for giving to the Lord. Because you know what? I'm here because you gave. And they'll, and they'll share then, right? And maybe they, they would share even before that. 
But the idea is that the money that we give during the time of offering is going to change lives for the gospel. And so this is the impetus for all of this. It's the gospel. Um, A gospel story about a manager who went to the master's debtors, but instead of reducing their debt to the master, told them quickly to write on their bill, not half off or a quarter off, but paid in full. You know, it must have been uh, tough for Jesus to tell this story because it really was about himself. uh, And he was referring to himself as the manager. But unlike the dishonest manager who wanted to be welcomed into the homes of debtors, This righteous manager put himself in the place of debtors and in so doing pays the debt of sit in full for sacrificing his own life and in the shrewdness of his heart and power made sinners into eternal friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends and you are my friends, Jesus says. And so now we see unwrapped the significance of the time of our offering and why we do it and why we allocate time during our precious one hour together on Sundays um, to do this. Because in the age of Venmo and QuickPay, I mean, we could easily just kind of encourage you guys to do it from your couches during the week. But why is it that we set aside time during our liturgy? Well, the reason is uh, that we do that is because we want to make this a visible and corporate expression of our thanksgiving for the divine shrewdness that saved us, um, to remind us of the gospel uh, that invested in us to make us eternal friends for eternal dwellings. I want to end our time uh, with a song. Um, I'm not going to sing it. But it's a song, um, it's an old song. It was written in 1988 by this fellow named Ray Boltz. Um, and he talks about and dreams about how he went to heaven and all the sorts of stories that he's going to hear. And um, listen uh, to this song as we close our time here. I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing, then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now, but then he said, but wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one morning when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. Uh, Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church. His pictures makes you cry or made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took that gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came as far as the eye could see each one somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on earth, heaven now proclaims. And I know up in heaven that you're not supposed to cry, but I was was almost sure there were tears in your eyes. 
as Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord and he said, my child, look around for great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad that you gave. Offerings for eternal friends, for eternal dwellings. And that's what our time of offering is all about. And so let's think on that um, as we continue to, as a church, uh, give to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is just absolutely astounding that you would have it in such a way that by your riches of shrewdness that you would give all that to us so that in your eventual poverty uh, that we would become rich as eternal friends in eternal dwellings. And in light of that, uh, we want to give of ourselves to you. Help us to do that here at Exilic Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.